seated. Let us go to God in prayer before we read our scripture text. Eternal God, in your freedom, you created the universe and everything in it. You have not only given us physical life, but you have given us spiritual life. And you have given us your word by which we learn your truth and we pattern our lives according to your will. We ask that your spirit would guide us, would teach us, and lead us this morning. And send us forward to be your ambassadors of love and truth and grace. Amen. Our text today is from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And if you like to have kind of a mental timeline in your mind, uh, his letter to the Romans was written in about 57 AD. And it's generally believed that Paul wrote the letter to the Romans while he was visiting in Corinth. So, you know, the, the place that bears the, uh, the letters Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. So, where those letters were sent to, that's likely where Paul was when he's sending this letter to the Romans. And so this would have been on his third missionary journey. Um, the letter to the Romans, it's generally thought of as probably the most theologically robust of the letters in the New Testament. And now we should understand that Paul wasn't necessarily trying to write a systematic theology textbook. That that was not the purpose or really the emphasis for his writing this letter. Romans, like his other letters, were pastoral in nature. There were issues coming up within the Roman church. It was, there was things that were dividing them. They were having disagreements, uh, not getting along well. And what Paul wanted to do was to kind of dismantle those issues and disagreements by bringing them back to the central focus, which was Christ. Bringing them back to the foundation. They were all redeemed by Christ, and they are all united in Christ. When we understand that, sometimes our, our petty differences just vanish away. So may that be an encouragement for us as well. In the church today, we, we talk about having freedom in Christ. I usually say after the prayer of confession that in Christ we are forgiven and set free. I thought it would be fitting today and in this 4th of July weekend to talk a little bit more about what freedom in Christ means. And we won't be able to cover all of it in a lot of detail, but we want to paint uh, kind of with a broad brush a little bit. And for our text, I want us to to look at Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. And in it, Paul writes, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and to deal with sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit." For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. 
To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does, it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit. Since the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit that dwells in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption when we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if, in fact, we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Since it's 4th of July weekend, I thought uh, we would just kind of do a little mental exercise, do a little time travel. So let's mentally step back in time to the year 1775. All right, you need a minute to do that? You got it? 1775, you're there, you're transported. All right, but where? Okay, so we're going to be in the colony of Virginia. So maybe up there it's a little cooler today than it is down here, but think 1775, you're in the colony of Virginia. And a little bit of the context at that time, by 1775, there had been increasing tensions between the American colonies and England and King George III. The colonists felt like they had been treated unfairly. And in that unjust treatment, that they didn't have a voice in the matter. Any attempt at petitioning their case seemed to fall on deaf ears or were just altogether dismissed completely. And the British response to all this kind of unrest in the colonies was getting stronger and stronger. There was more of a military presence. And so a convention was called for, which in 1775, it was actually the second uh, of, of these conventions, but it was at this second convention that delegates were going to come together and discuss how they could continue to negotiate with the king and what they were going to do, like what their next steps were, because nothing had seemed to have been working. And so this would, as, as history would kind of look back and call it, it would be known as the Second Virginia Convention. And approximately 120 delegates gather, gathered to get, together and Patrick Henry was one of these delegates, got a picture of him or a portrait of him right there. And by this time, Patrick Henry, he'd become a pretty influential person in Virginia. He was a well-respected lawyer, and he had been outspoken in his opposition 
uh, to England on a number of issues, one of those being the Stamp Act, if you're a history buff and know what that is. But a couple other names you might recognize who also attended this convention were George Washington, you know, before he was general and before all that. Uh, Also Thomas Jefferson. So they were both Virginians and they were delegates to this convention. And Washington and Henry were actually, they were pretty good friends for the first convention. Washington even invited Patrick Henry to stop by his home, Mount Vernon, so that they could ride together to Philadelphia. So that's a, a painting picture of Washington and, and Henry, and I forget, Pendleton or someone is the, the third person there. The second convention, it was going to be held in Richmond and at St. John's Episcopal Church. And so this is an old picture of it. If you, if you look up new pictures of it or if you go and visit it today, it looks a little different. They, they had an addition, so it's got a nice pretty tall steeple, but this was a picture from before the convention, just kind of a plain-looking, you know, building, and hard to believe 120 delegates could fit in there, but this is the church where they met uh, in that March of 1775. So within the walls of that church, Patrick Henry believed that war was imminent, It wasn't a matter of if, it was just kind of more of a matter of when in his mind. And he sought to persuade the others there that they should begin to prepare for such an inevitable outcome. And so after a few days of, you know, kind of back and forth and deliberation, on March 23rd, Henry put forth a resolution. And he pleaded with the other delegates to raise a militia as some other colonies had already been doing. So, you know, that's, a, that's kind of a defiant stance, to raise a militia. There were many who did not support his resolution. They were, they were very divided on this topic and how they were going to proceed forward. And so after a few dele- delegates had spoken on the matter, Henry stood up to give his own comments. And this is what's recorded. It says, this is Patrick Henry's word, or... We'll talk about that in a minute. Okay, so from Patrick Henry's voice. If we were base enough to desire it, it is now too late to retire from the contest. There is no retreat but in submission and slavery. Our chains are forged. Their clanking may be heard on the plains of Boston. The war is inevitable, and let it come. I repeat it, sir, let it come. It is in vain, sir, to extenuate the matter... Gentlemen may cry, peace, peace, but there is no peace. The war is actually begun. The next gale that sweeps from the north will bring to our ears the clash of resounding arms. Our brethren are already in the field. Why stand we here idle? What is it that gentlemen wish? What would they have? Is life so dear? Or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what the course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. It said that uh, when he said that last line, give me liberty or give me death, he took a, a letter opener, not a highlighter, but a letter opener and kind of went to his chest with it. He was imitating a a popular play back in the time, Cato. Um, But give me liberty 
or give me death. You've probably heard that phrase before. Well, we actually do not have a a written record or copy of his speech. We don't have any firsthand accounts. This account of Patrick Henry's words was compiled much later. So whether it's 100% accurate or maybe a little bit embellished, we don't really know. But we do know, regardless of the exact words, that he did give an impassioned speech. And the result of that speech rallied others to the cause of liberty. Patrick's, Patrick Henry's revolution would pass, barely, it wasn't unanimous, it barely passed, but it passed. And it would be well-timed because less than a month later, things would reach a boiling point at Lexington and Concord where British troops had a little run-in, a clash with colonists there leading to the first, first casualties of the American Revolution, the Revolutionary War, and what would be known as the shot heard round the world. Patrick Henry would continue to be a very influential man throughout the American Revolution, served a number of positions of leadership, and Thomas Jefferson himself would later write of Patrick Henry saying, it is now not easy to say what we should have done with Patrick, Uh, it is now not, let me start that over, it is not now easy to say what we should have done with Patrick Henry He was before us all in maintaining the spirit of the revolution. For Patrick Henry and others, there was really only two options before them. It was either liberty or it was death. And the pursuit of liberty was really the heartbeat, the drumbeat of the revolution. And after a, a year after this convention... The Declaration of Independence was penned and it included these famous words, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And when they're penning these words and they're giving these speeches, you know, their purpose was not to compose theological doctrine, but for them, liberty, the idea of liberty, the state of liberty, is a state of being to which all humans ought to enjoy. Because liberty is a defining quality of what it means to live as God created us to be. So for our founding fathers, the cause of liberty was certainly worth fighting for and worth dying for. Well, the Apostle Paul spoke of liberty as well, obviously from a different context and from, a, uh, and from his point of view, from a very theological perspective. Paul understood that there were tyrannical forces at work, and namely these tyrannical forces were sin and death. At the beginning of our text today, Romans 8, verses 1 and 2, we, we see this clearly, where he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Here in Paul's words, we are presented with two options. There is the law of the Spirit of life in Christ, that is our freedom in Christ, our liberty, or there's the law of sin and death. So there's liberty in Christ or sin and death. 
And the nature of sin, if we think about sin, is that it manipulates. It seeks to control and it ultimately seeks to destroy. In the previous chapter, chapter 7 of Romans, Paul describes in kind of personal detail the nature of sin's control or sin's tyranny upon himself. He wrote, I am of the flesh, sold into slavery under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. But in fact, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. So it's kind of a tongue twister. It's kind of hard to keep track. It's, a, it's almost comical to read through it. But what he's saying is that sin has this control over him. He knows what he should do. He knows what he wants to do. But sin is so persuasive. It's so manipulative. It's so controlling that he falls back in it. Sin, yes, it's manipulative. It's deceptive. It promises life. It promises happiness, or at least the alluring mirage of life and happiness. But really, its path leads to destruction and ultimately death. That's sin's ultimate goal is death, with kind of the capital D, death. Death is the final victory of sin's battle. So what can we do about sin and death? What can we do to avoid it or defeat it? We can't go to war against it so much like the revolutionaries did. We can really do nothing against it on our own. Our only hope against that tyrannical enemy is to be rescued. A few verses later, Paul himself even says, Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? And he immediately answers his own question saying, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is our rescue. Only God can restore us. And he does so through the life, through the death, and the resurrection of Christ. As Paul says in verses 3 and 4 of our passage, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And to deal with sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Christ came to break the power of sin and death, and now those forces have no power to reign over us. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has the final victory. Even though the ultimate power... or So if Jesus has the final victory, what about sin and death? 
Sin is still prevalent, and we still die, correct? We have to realize what that means for us, that even Christ died. But the significance is that by the power of God, Christ was risen. We are not granted immortality, a life in which we never experience death. What we are granted is resurrection and new life, that death has no longer the final word, but Christ has the final word. That is our victory. Death no longer has dominion and ultimate authority. Christ reigns, and Christ has ultimate authority. And it is in Christ we place our trust and our hope. Sin and death are still a thing. But there is a choice now that we must make. And I think this is a choice that we can make each and every day. And that choice is rather between two things. It is whether we are going to live according to the Spirit or if we're going to live according to the flesh, which is to mean according to the law of sin and death. Paul lays out the options. He says, picking up in verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Our options is whether we in our lives are going to set our minds on Christ on the new life that we have in Christ and the hope that we have in Christ, or if we're going to sink back into the shadows and live in the state of sin and death and let those things have a foothold in our lives. By our passivity and sometimes even our blatant rebellion, we often do let sin and death exert their power over us rather than trusting in the grace and the liberty of Christ. I want to keep the the take-home message today kind of as abbreviated as possible. The choice before you today is liberty or death. Our founding fathers felt like liberty was so important that they were willing to, to die for it. And for us, Jesus has already died for our liberty. Jesus has already died that we could be set free from the power of sin and death. So the choice that we have today is, are we going to shrink back and live according to our old self and according to the law of sin and death? Or are we going to venture forward boldly, living according to the Spirit of Christ? And if so, if that is our path forward, what does that look like for you? What does that look like for us as a church? What does that mean for us as a church? Which one will you choose? Which one will you pursue with your life? Choose liberty. Choose freedom. Choose to live according to the Spirit. Choose to live in the grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray together. Lord, we thank you 
for this weekend in which we reflect on the freedom that we have. Lord, the freedom that was earned for us uh, through the sacrifice of so many. We thank you for our country. Lord, we thank you for um, our military personnel. We thank you for our law enforcement and first responders. Lord, we thank you for the many freedoms that we enjoy. Lord, help us.